Uh, the talk tonight is on the seven factors of enlightenment. It's probably going to be a two-part talk, but you never know. Uh, recently, uh, Sayadaw from Burma was teaching in Honolulu um, in July. And when he came to our house for uh, dana, for a meal, um, I usually have um, one question I like to ask him at the end of the meal as a kind of tradition. And this year, I asked him a little bit about Mara. Uh, and sometimes when we hear about Mara, uh, sometimes Mara is translated as the killer of existence. But he's usually uh, known as a deity. And sometimes we use our sort of Western um, context for understanding light and dark and think of Mara as maybe a, a tempter like the devil or Satan. So I wanted to ask Saidel, you know, his uh, understanding of Mara as a deity. And he said that Mara lives on a very, very high uh, plane of existence as a deva. And that his intention on tempting the Buddha or other beings is not evil. He said that he appeared to the Buddha after his enlightenment uh, to try to get the Buddha not to teach, uh, to keep people in samsara. So he's just <laughs> comes along, you know, to tr you know try to keep the Buddha from awakening people. And in terms of sort of that imagery of um, what is it that pulls us to go to sleep, or what is it that pulls us to awaken? You know, Mara is that um, metaphor of us being pulled toward the choice for the dust in the eyes. So we have a very deep desire to be free, to awaken, to not have dust in our eyes. But we also have <laughs> this desire for samsara, for sleep. The seven factors of enlightenment are a context uh, for how we move toward the light, for how we awaken. And try to remember when you listen to this talk that um, being awake or being asleep is a choice we make every moment of our life. Rumi said, I remind you with these poems to dress in the flower of God's qualities, not your torn robe of self-accusation. The seven factors of enlightenment are how we dress in God's qualities. Being, moving towards samsara is dressing in the torn robe of self-accusation. So when we dress in the flower of God's qualities, it's usually when we have some of the seven factors happening, or one, or all of them. The first is mindfulness, and tonight I want to talk a, b a bit about mindfulness and then the next three factors of awakening, which are the energizing factors of enlightenment. And those are investigation, energy, and rapture. And then the next three and the last three are tranquilizing, calm concentration, equanimity. And it's helpful to remember that different factors ripen at different times in our practice. And when we feel that we have deeply touched the truth of life, when we have a moment or moments of complete understanding, it's when the seven factors of enlightenment come into balance. There's a, a great purity of heart when they come into balance. 
there's an experience of feeling deeply connected, but also non-attached. And that can, that can intellectually seem very paradoxical. Uh, but that, that union of a deep connection or participation, as well as a, a deep non-attachment, is a moment of completion, when we really don't need any more. And that's a happy, peaceful, awake heart or mind in that moment. As these factors evolve and ripen, there's more and more a potential for freedom to mature and ripen for us. Sometimes when we hear the seven factors of enlightenment, uh, they might seem at times far away, but they're actually um, close by. They're not obscure. And they can come into balance at any moment, and they usually seem to come into balance for no apparent reason. So they are a gift or a kind of grace. And when they come into balance, uh, they don't come into balance in the past or the future. They can only come into balance now when we're lifting our toothbrush up to brush our teeth in that moment of really deeply connecting and also non-identifying. That's a moment of maturing of the seven factors. And we're there. It's a moment of completion. So it's not like we have to think that we're just doing that with the breath or a movement of the leg. But it's really any moment, like I said, where we choose to be awake. Even when we wake up from a deep sleep and that moment where we're there, that's a choice to be awake. Mindfulness um, helps ripen and mature the other six factors of enlightenment. And Sayadaw Upandita once said, uh, you can never have enough mindfulness. It's like it, <laughs> you just can't get enough mindfulness. <laughs> and it's the moment when we remember to be here. Remembering to be here. It's that simple. It's that spirit of beginning again, of beginning again. No matter how many times we judge being lost, it's like that doesn't matter. It's this purity of heart in the moment of being here, arriving here. The next investigation is literally described as if there, the room was dark and you turned on a light. It, it lightens up the experience from darkness to light. Sometimes I think of this as pure exploration when the motivation is pure, investigation will be pure. The next factor is energy, sometimes called courageous effort. And it's really the courage to bring our attention right to what's happening, no matter what's happening. So one can think of energy as courage. Another way to describe that courage is that it's a commitment to face the truth, moment by moment. Or even you could say more than commitment, it's the love of the truth. And the next uh, joyful interest or rapture, um, it, it ripens from the love of the truth to this deep delight in the truth. So those are the energizing factors. And remember that these seven factors aren't personal, just like the hindrances aren't personal. These conditions come and go by themselves. Mindfulness 
it's not a thought about the experience. It's not the concept of an experience. It's not complicated, which is why it's difficult for us. It's simple. It's just that pre-verbal awareness before concept appears. And there, there, there is that sense with mindfulness that you have returned to the source. It's, there's a renewal that happens when we experience mindfulness. Mindfulness happens when we renounce the dream. So we're renouncing a concept or story. The Buddha said that all things can be mastered by mindfulness. And what we're learning, especially on a long retreat, is that it can become a way of life, this, this choice to remember to be here. It isn't just for the retreat, but really that it's a, a love of a lifetime for lifetimes. I like to think of mindfulness as, as allowing the universe to touch us more deeply. So you'll hear me emphasize a lot this quality of, of receptivity um, because it's this sense of allowing being touched, whether the contact is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. But mindfulness really requires this receptive attention. Um, and then when we allow that touching, sometimes we drop into the experience so that we know it from the inside. So the, the mindfulness can deepen um, at times into this experiential insight that comes from knowing the experience, not intellectually from the outside, but really knowing it intuitively from the inside. One of the wonderful things about mindfulness is that any time that you remember to be here, it plants a seed for another moment to remember. And the little detail that we don't like about this is that you can't control when you remember to be here again. So you can make the choice to be here in the moment, and that will guarantee a seed planted for another moment to remember. But you see, when you really let yourself go and just dive into the moment, you can't control if the next moment you'll be mindful or not. So we don't like that part of letting go. But to trust that each time you commit to that moment to be awake, it's going to plant a seed for another moment to be awake. And equally, unfortunately, every time we commit to being asleep, it plants a seed for another moment to be asleep. So that, that, ha- that has that sense of that battle between light and dark, or Mara, the hindrances, armies of Mara, and the factors of awakening. When the factors are in balance, there's no battle. The struggle is over. There's peace. So as our commitment to awaken grows, um, we often learn that faith is not a matter of belief, but it's simply the love of the truth. And our trust in our capacity to glimpse the truth that is the nature of the universe um, will grow and grow. We can't understand what we don't connect with. So mindfulness is what allows us to make this connection with whatever appears so that we can understand. Investigation is the next factor, and it's the first of the energizing factors. Sometimes Investigation is very subtle, so it can be described as a light going on in a dark room, 
But I find that there is a shift that happens when investigation appears, that it's a shift in the quality in the mind from taking for granted that we know something or thinking that we know something, which that plants the seeds for dullness and boredom, whereas investigation shifts the quality to an interest in what's happening. And that shift from thinking we know to the willingness not to know is pure exploration. Mindfulness truly, uh, or being in the present moment, truly is a moment where we dive into the unknown because each moment is new. Each moment takes uh, birth, lives, and passes away. So, of course, intellectually we can understand that each moment is new. So if we're really mindful or present, we'll, we'll be facing the unknown. But in actual fact, we don't always like that lo- loss of control where we're willing not to know. And uh, investigation is that light in the mind that might sound paradoxical again, but it's really when we're willing not to know what's happening and dive into the unknown the mind becomes crackling alive when investigation happens. It requires facing our vulnerability. It requires facing uncertainty. I have found that there are times when I'm walking or sitting or eating uh, and there's that sense of a dullness or boredom starting to appear, that at the right time, by just asking a question, like, what is my experience of my foot right now? You know, or what is my experience of chewing? This is investigation. There are all kinds of ways in the contemplative world for this question to appear investigation. You know, what is body? What is mind? It's just any question that cuts us from concept to reality. The difficulty with um, wanting pure um, exploration is that sometimes we might be bored, for example, and have aversion to the boredom and try to investigate the sensations of the movement of the leg, when really what's predominant is aversion to boredom. And I would encourage you to really look at this in your practice, because it's impossible to investigate the sensations in the leg if aversion to boredom is happening. And we'll be actually manipulating and using investigation to avoid the boredom and try to get back in time to the point where we were actually experiencing in the present moment the sensations in the leg. But by the time boredom has happened, that's long gone. That's in the past. So you see, that's that's not pure motivation. Pure motivation would be asking ourselves, what is aversion free from my ideas about it? Or what is boredom free from my ideas about it? You see the difference? It's like one, one is really pure investigation and it's really having a light on. The other is just getting lost in aversion and trying to get away from it by getting closer to the sensations in the leg. So investigation isn't being motivated by trying to get rid of anything and investigation isn't colored by striving. So if we're wanting something to happen, like more clarity when it's dull, and we're trying to investigate through the, through the dullness and that the, this wanting comes, it's more important to step back and see if we can investigate the wanting. Again, because to, for the motivation to be colored by ambition, we're missing what's really happening in the present moment. And it's not pure exploration.
It's just reinforcing, wanting. So that willingness to be really honest and investigate what's truly there is what brings this aliveness and brightness of mind. Investigation, which is asking ourselves what's really happening right now versus what do I want to be happening right now, uh, is meant to light up the uh, three characteristics of existence. So sometimes if we're really close to our experience with mindfulness and with investigation, there'll be times when we see through the lens of anicca. We'll see uh, the experience of change and flux very clearly. Other times we might see through the lens of dukkha. We'll see the fleetingness and unreliability of experience. And it's that lack of reliability which is the suffering. And then sometimes we'll, th- we'll, we'll understand reality through the lens of anatta, which is the lack of essential identity within the flux of change. So investigation lights up the three characteristics of existence, which is quite profound. This is the great Zen master Dogen's instructions for the cook of a retreat. An oven does not discriminate between fancy firewood and thorns. It accepts everything without preference and transforms it into thermal energy to cook rice or to heat bath water. Pleasure and sadness, love and hatred, All different kinds of firewood come into the oven of our lives. How can we go about accepting and burning them all, transforming them into the energy of our lives? If we complain and become sulky, our lives become smoky, and we cannot burn anything. And when we become smoky, we disturb others. The cook was considered a very important part of retreat to Dogen. And of course, if you contemplate that as a yogi, you know that the cooks are very important (laughs) to a retreat, but you would realize that Dogen was very um, wise. So this shift from investigation to energy, those mindfulness, investigation, energy, it's like if we can bring our attention closer to the experience through asking ourselves what's happening, we connect more deeply and we come up to this question of energy, courage. The courage to face whatever comes in the oven versus, again, our preferences. So the more we accept what appears and work with it, the more energy we have. The more we react to what's happening, the less energy we have. And I find that example of us getting sulky and smoking really interesting because in some ways um, I feel that investigation and mindfulness uh, will help us to balance the appearance of anything. So say even the appearance of self-pity or sulkiness. Often we have shame associated with it. It's like we don't think that self-pity should arise. So I I, um, spoke this quotation tonight because, you know, it has that two edges to it. So what do we do if the smoky oven happens? And all it takes is, again, remembering to step back and accept, be interested, not identify. 
I've had to um, be investigating nursing homes in the last week or so uh, for my aunt. My aunt is 96, and she's been in a nursing home for about 15 years, and the nursing home's closing. So you can just imagine in terms of Anicca and Dukkha, just picture yourself at 96, having really moved in, you know, You'd think by 96, maybe there'd be less Anicca. So she's been there 15 years in her own room, and the place is closing. Um, and my father has been the one taking care of her details. So all of a sudden, um, what's really interesting, I think, that you might find also um, startling, is that she has to go through not only an application, but an interview process. I thought, you know, okay, we had to do that at kindergarten, right? And, you know, you kind of get through the first 12 years of school, and then you apply to jobs, and, you know, and then you'd think at 96 maybe you could just get accepted somewhere. (laughs) But here we are going through this interview (laughs) process. Uh, So after six nursing homes, I started to feel bad for myself (laughs) that I had to, you know, keep checking these places out. You know, they're not exactly a peak experience. (laughs) You know, so I was going into this last one and it was late at night and I was like, oh, poor me, you know, and I was smoking, just like that description is, you know, and of course smoking can start to extend out beyond yourself. And then it was like, oh yeah, it's just poor me. Let myself connect with it, not bat it out, you know, to left field. But it's really stepping back and allowing oneself to participate in that appearance. Ah. Can I let myself be touched very deeply by that part of the universe? Self-pity. Poor me, poor me. And then it can transform. There's that energy because there's the courage to touch it, to allow oneself to receive it. And then if you receive something, it will cook and go by itself. Whatever it is. It's so interesting how that happens. And that's this quality of investigation and how it's related to energy and how we balance ourselves in practice and in life. There was a conversation that I read once between uh, someone who was visiting a Benedictine monastery, and he asked this monk who'd been in there, I think over 25 years, um, what the biggest obstacle he had to experiencing God. And he thought about it, and he said, the other monks. And so I'd like to read (coughs) a passage from Thomas Merton that I think is quite um, amusing, but it doesn't capture at all how long Thomas Merton worked with this particular situation at his monastery. And this is journals from 1941 to 1952, and almost, it's not quite every page, but on most of the pages in these journals, he's struggling with what's going on in the choir. You know, so just picture, you know, this retreat going on forever, right? You're here forever with, with these people. And you have, you know, this very important thing, choir. And, and so this is sort of, you can see it's a big book. This is sort of in the middle of him struggling. Ah, like, it's just so painful to w- listen to him struggling with how much he hates what's happening in the choir. And he's very afraid that he's going to be headed, uh, um, appointed the head cantor. But he, um, so he prays a lot that he's not going to be appointed, <laughs> you know, the head of the choir. That's a lot of other passages. But I mean, I was reading this the other night, and I actually <laughs> was 
crying. I was laughing so hard because you kind of can't get quite the flavor that it's happening practically every page. Um, how intense this choir is for him, how grating it is for him. I guess they must sing really horribly. You know, so here he is. In my interior life, there is a small area of raw and inflamed and infected thought and emotion, and it, incur- it concerns the choir <laughs> and the head cantor. The pitch pipe blows, and the cantor m- comes in a quarter tone below the pipe, and the choir comes in a quarter tone below him. This is years and years, right? And we all start singing together like a bunch of rusty machines. This week, I am sub-invitator, and so my pride is involved, and I give out the psalms in what I think is the right note, which is supposed these days to be F-sharp. In 10 seconds, we are all singing F. And then E. And I, on on my side, continue with painstaking refinement to sing what I think is (laughs) F-sharp. Father Raymond's voice can be heard on the other side in a loud, piteous complaint, which which gets everybody mad, and F-sharp becomes totally unpopular. (laughs) 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 Then someone else as a reproach to the abbot, sings E-flat, and immediately the novices and the solid contingents of flats on our side picks it up, and it goes down to D. (laughs) And I relapse into a dignified undertone, sulking with all my might and muttering things that do not assuage my feelings. And that is how it is every day. (laughs) Sometimes I get so sore I'm out of breath. Then the head cantor comes in with his notion that (laughs) that we must stop abruptly every time we come to a bar, and I shudder and enter into a significant hush which is intended to convey the thought that I cannot possibly cooperate with a sacrilege. (laughs) I wonder if Jesus ever gets tired of waiting for me to grow up. I hope not. I wonder if Jesus ever gets tired of waiting for me to grow up. I hope not. So I'd say he was having a little trouble investigating, you know, that experience, you know. It was just, you know, that's such a great description of yogi mind. You know, it was incredible. You know, we just think it's so important. And it turns out that, you know, it's just a little reaction. So the mindfulness and the investigation didn't quite catch when they shifted from F to F, <laughs> from F sharp to F. So it goes from uh, mindfulness to then investigation, and then energy or courage, and it's called heroic or courageous energy uh, because takes courage to actually face what's happening in our life, moment to moment. Sometimes this process is effortless, and sometimes it takes a tremendous amount of energy, and both are true. We tend to like it when it's effortless, and when we, we don't tend to like it when it takes a lot of energy or effort. <coughs> The ups and downs of energy are not personal, but it's quite easy to identify with the ups and downs of energy. So this is a very general way of seeing how to work with energy and to work with balancing energy. But generally speaking, if energy is high, 
the chances of us being mindful are quite likely. But it's not personal. And when the energy is medium, there's still quite likely chance for us to um, work with an experience with some dignity. And when our energy is low, the likelihood of us working with an experience with some dignity starts to get a little foggy, you know, because we tend to think that we shouldn't be sleepy, we shouldn't be dull, we shouldn't be whatever, restless, whatever it is. Um, there's this judgment about our experience. And of course, if energy is high, gen generally the seven factors will start coming into more balance. And we, we, we call that a good sitting or a good walking or a good whatever. And then we're good, right? We're great. We're golden. In fact, we're maybe the best yogi here. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> Better than the teachers. You know, I mean, it goes on and on and on. You know, and then when we're low energy, you know, you just want to pack up and get out of here, right? You know, it's horrible. We don't want to be here. You know, we don't know. We wish we never told anybody <laughs> about the practice. It just, it's just the opposite because we've identified with experience as being bad. Just keep noticing how it's related to energy. When I started to understand this, it allowed my practice to come to more balance and more balance because I wasn't reacting to the ups and downs of energy. So learning to t not take our experience so personally is a real uh, key to the seven factors maturing. And <coughs> it's really the basis of the happiness and peace in this practice. You know, the happiness and peace isn't coming from having a particular experience. And that takes going through the ups and downs in energy over and over again, just like Thomas Merton going through choir practice over. This happens every day. Doesn't ups and downs in, of energy? It happens every day. And we'll watch ourselves grab onto a good sitting and not like the hard sitting over and over and over and over till we start getting disenchanted and more disenchanted with experience itself. Sometimes in practice, the transformation of the energy, uh, like the example Dogen gives in the oven, um, requires a kind of incubating, and that culturally we don't tend to uh, approve of very much. So if we take the imagery of a, um, the metamorphosis from a, a cocoon, you know, worm, cocoon, butterfly. Uh, when the cocoon happens, it will feel like not much is happening in our practice. You know, when, when the worm is born, you know, you chew and chew and chew and chew and chew, and you actually think something's happening. That's when you're having to work at the practice uh, and make effort. But then sometimes, you know, we go into a cocoon, and we just have to digest and trust, this is the place that requires the most trust and patience, that something's happening. When you think nothing's happening, something's happening. There were so many times in my practice when I worked with Upandita where he would just smile and say, digest this. And it w sometimes it would be a month, digest this, and it would be like, <laughs> you know, I didn't want it be digesting it anymore. I wanted something more flashy and new. You know, so that the practice will take um, times of maturing where we don't even, we can't even fathom 
what's mature. We can't even fathom hardly that we're in a cocoon, but it will be the times where we'll feel like not much is happening. And remember that when a butterfly comes out of a cocoon too quickly, the wings won't be strong enough for flight. And so we'll want to we'll want to move we'll want to move faster than this process happens, but actually we're not strong enough. And this process of, you know, butterfly, worm, cocoon, butterfly, worm, cocoon happens over and over and over. We like to think that we get to butterfly and it just stays there for the rest of our lives. But if we're growing, we'll keep going through this process over and over and over with all the seven factors. So knowing how to rest There's effortless practice, there's efforting practice, both are true, and then there's knowing how to rest in the cocoon. Recently, um, I've been learning from some of the staff here at IMS how to mountain bike, Uh, and my past experience with biking has been sort of like going out on a little stroll, but on the bike, you know, and it was like on the roads here and maybe half an hour, you know, really pushing it would have been 45 minutes. And it was, you know, I really took it easy and didn't push anything with it. So now I'm trying to learn how to go out with the big kids on the bikes, um, and they go out for hours and hours and hours, it seems. And I've only been out a few times, but... um, I'll notice that when my energy holds up for a while, I don't really mind the uphills. But after about a certain, maybe, well, after an hour, 20 minutes, I dread the hills, you know. But it seems like after about 45 minutes, 50 minutes, I start planning how to avoid the hills. And I'm usually with somebody else, and the last two times I was out, we went this certain way, which when you're, if you consider Barry, which is sort of up, right? Anywhere you go is down. So after you're out for a while, you, <laughs> you have to come back up. And I've been going out further than my limits. And so when we hit the place of coming back, I notice I'm biking, but I'm not there. I'm planning how to avoid the hills coming back. But I can't because they're all hills. So then I start planning how to avoid the steepest hills. And then I'll inform the person I'm going with that we can't go the way we came because there's too steep a hill. And so then we'll stop and they'll say, but Michelle, um, the way you want to go is going to require a lot more calories and it's way out of the way. And I'm like, I can't face it. I just can't. It's like I can't do it. You know, we have to go all the way around. So this has happened twice. And then, you know, the, the people who went out with me were very... Um, patient and kind. And it was quite interesting because they were right. (laughs) You know, it was like way out of the way. We went miles and miles (laughs) out of the way and I'm dying. (laughs) It's like, and I kept thinking, I should have listened to them. But then I could, every time I thought about how steep the hill was, I was like, no, 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 I couldn't have done that. And then it's just a long, long, long way back. Um, And it's such an interesting teaching. Because it's just like the practice. I don't, I don't have enough skill yet. And as I get more energy and more skill, I see that I'm not as um, leery of the hills. Hopefully, the same thing is happening in your practice. You know, as you practice over years, you'll be less afraid of the low energy times. You won't take them so personally. But still, it's in a long day of practice when the energy really goes down. That's the time that we tend to identify, and that's the time when we learn the most. We forget. We think it's the peak experience, the good sittings. But actually, when we're not identifying with being sleepy, (laughs) we're learning so much about anatta. We're learning so much about letting go of control. We're learning about not being in control.
most of us have heard about um, Ananda. And he um, went to the first council that was held after the Buddha died, you know, to go over all of the Buddha's teachings. And they needed 500 arahants. They needed 500 fully enlightened beings. And they only had 499. Now just picture this. Okay. You're, Ar- you're Ananda, and they need 500, and you're at the council, and you know, there's a slight bit of pressure for you to become an arahant. Just think about how much pressure that would be. Just think if tonight, you know, there was this, the most historic meeting that could have ever been held in Buddhism. There's 499 arahants, and there's only you left to become an arahant. You know, could your practice be relaxed? <laughs> so, <coughs> this is about relaxed effort. You know, he was trying too hard, he was pushing, he was sitting, walking, sitting, walking, and just as he was lying down to go to sleep, he wasn't lying down and he wasn't standing. He was actually on his way. And there was just this moment as he was going down of relaxation. And he got fully enlightened. He he needed that balance of relaxation and effort. All of us can do that. Tonight. Well, I guess we have to uh, maybe leave joyful interest for the next time. Um, Yeah. Just to, so that we get a sense of these energizing factors. Um, When we have the courage to face the present moment as it is, then it's said that joyful interest can arise in the experience. So it's not just the interest like we have in investigation, but it's actually a joyful interest. So there can be interest, and then there's joyful interest, which is the deep delight in the truth of things. It's very uh, powerful. It feels wonderful. And it feels wonderful because we're interested in anything that appears. So we can be interested in the sound of the wind the warmth of the temperature or the cold temperature coming in. We can be interested in the beauty of the leaves or also the darkness and the rain. We can be interested in loving kindness but also rage. We can be interested in back pain and equanimity. So I'll say more about joyful interest, but it's really this quality of... um, it's like a opposite of ambition or opposite of striving. It's like the pure heart of a child. We know that whatever, whatever appears is worthy of our attention. So I'd like to end with a quotation from T. T.S. Eliot from the Four Quartets. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Through Through the unknown remembered gate, when the last of earth left to discover is that which was the beginning as the source of the longest river, the voice of the hidden waterfall, and the children in the apple tree not known because not looked for, but heard, half heard in the stillness between two waves of the sea. Quick now, here, now, always, a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. And all shall be well, 
and all manner of things shall be well when the tongues of flame are enfolded into the crowned knot of fire and the fire and the rose are one. Let's sit for a minute. May we continue to wake up from our deep sleep. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.